The NASH Take Action podcast series is a CME program brought to you by the American Gastroenterological Association. NASH is the most advanced form of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. This six-episode podcast series is ACCME accredited. The series is sponsored by a medical education grant from Novo Nordisk. You can find all six episodes and collect your CME credits at nash.gastro.org. Welcome to the NASH Take Action podcast. I am Dr. Fasiha Kanwal, Professor and Chief of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at Baylor College of Medicine, Houston, Texas. In this podcast, uh, my colleagues Ken Kusi and Jay Shubrook and I will talk to global leaders in gastroenterology, hepatology, endocrinology, and primary care about the real-world practical implications of screening, diagnosing, and managing people with NAFLD and NASH. In this episode, we are talking about the prevalence of NAFLD and NASH and their clinical and economic burdens. I'm here with my co-hosts, Dr. Ken Kusi and Dr. Jay Shubrook. Ken, do you want to just introduce yourself? Hi, Fasiha. Thank you for for having me. Uh, I'm the Chief of Endocrinology and Diabetes at the University of Florida at Gainesville, North Florida. Jay? Yeah, hi, Jay Shubrook, uh, family physician and primary care diabetologist and a professor at Toro University, California, in Vallejo, California. Glad to be here. As you know, Ken and Jay, we are talking about prevalence of NAFLD and NASH and their clinical economic burdens. Let me start by asking you, Jay, how common is this condition in the population that you take care of? Well, you know, as we become a society that is increasingly obese, increasingly present with metabolic syndrome and diabetes, we're seeing this all the time. And in fact, I think we're we're missing it all the time. Uh, I think it's been predicted to be as much as 70% of people with diabetes and certainly many people with metabolic syndrome. So this is incredibly common in primary care. What about you, Ken? You take care of a very high-risk population. Well, uh, you know, we I spend, um, I run a diabetes clinic uh, at the VA and at the university, and uh, this is a growing problem. And again, you know, we have better treatments, but I think that we're still making late diagnosis and not finding the best teamwork needed to do the best job that we can. I could not agree with it more. Um, as a hepatologist, our clinic population has also shifted completely over the last few years. Uh, we used to see lots of people with hepatitis C virus infection, for example. Uh, they've been replaced uh, with individuals with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and their liver consequences. So it has shifted all across the board. And I think the point that both of you raised about under-recognition of this condition is also an important one. Um, looking at different studies that have looked at it systematically, uh, fewer than 10-15% of individuals who are in routine care with NAFL and NASH know about their diagnosis or are being managed properly for this condition. So clearly, we do have a, a, a lot of work to do. Um, do you, Ken, also want to talk a little bit about um, the economic burden um, of this right now and what's projected for the future well, as well? Well, absolutely. I mean, this is, you know, um, diabetes is big impact on this disease. And uh, we have been trying uh, through these podcasts and the clinical care pathways that we uh, develop with a number of experts across 
different fields, primary care, family medicine, GI, endocrine, and obesity management clinicians to raise the awareness because this is going to reach a point where we're not going to be able to take care of uh, such a large number of people with obesity and type 2 diabetes that have complications such as fatty liver disease. And I'm thinking we are going to hear from uh, Dr. Yonusi that these numbers are going to be unmanageable, uh, particularly, I think, those with diabetes. So I, I hope if there's one thing that comes out of this podcast is this call to action from patients, from doctors, from nurses, uh, physician assistants, everybody involved in the care of these complex patients. Jay, Jay, how do you see it from your angle? Yeah, I think we've become kind of numb to this. I think that we uh, were very highlighted to the concern about fatty liver initially. I think we were very keen to the workup, but I think we've come, seen it's become so common that we're just attributing, oh, you just have this. But what, what is new, and I think what is so important, is that there's something we can do about it. And I think we need to learn from both the white paper as well as the clinical care pathway to, to know that sending the right person at the right time can really change the trajectory of this disease while we work on those lifestyle components for everybody across the spectrum of the disease. So we need both. We need that kind of better awareness that we can change the progression across the spectrum, but we need timely and smart referrals to specialty care for those who could really benefit the most. That is an important uh, point that you raised because it's a large population. The numbers that we know about um, 25 to 30% of the population in the U.S., and I see similar numbers globally, uh, have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Their outcomes are compromised, but there is a special subset within that with NASH and fibrosis that uh, I think experiences the, the largest proportion of these suboptimal outcomes. And finding those patients out of this larger group is is the bigger challenge. Um, NASH clinical care pathway, as you know, identifies the individuals who are at the higher highest risk and also pr- provides practical uh, easy to implement guidance about what tests to use, who to select, and who to uh, then refer for further um, management and treatment. But another point that you raised, which also is highlighted in the National Clinical Care Pathway, is that the lifestyle changes they have to be recommended and, and endorsed for all individuals with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Um, and as a hepatologist, we are seeing the clinical uh, endpoints, the outcomes. Uh, of this group, uh, and it ranges from from not just advanced fibrosis to cirrhosis, all the complications for cirrhosis, and liver cancer. In our populations, it's becoming one of the leading causes of liver cancer, which is potentially preventable, avoidable, if patients are diagnosed earlier on and intervened upon earlier on. Yeah, so Fasika, I mean, as an endocrinologist and diabetologist, uh, I think just now this is uh, gaining some traction. And again, a paper from Dr. Yanusi that was published in Diabetes Care tried to outline this. And one of the key messages is that if you add NASH to uh, the complications of diabetes, the cost of care is like 20 times higher. Uh, the, uh, this amounts to about $160 billion uh, over the next uh, 20 years. And the, it's going to account for a quarter of all the transplants, just people with diabetes who would not need to uh, 
get to cirrhosis or need a transplant, if us as endocrinologists um, and family medicine uh, did an early uh, screening and intervention. So I think that's why these clinical care pathways uh, open the road for a complete change in our practice, a new paradigm at a time when these horrible numbers and all the human loss and pain can be avoided with simple measures. Absolutely, absolutely. So I talked to uh, Dr. Zubair Yunosi, president of a medical service line at Enova Health System in Falls Church, Virginia. And as you said, mentioned, I pioneer in NAFL research, and this is what he had to say. Zubair, it's wonderful to be here with you. Um, you know, I, as I think about all the work and all the uh, evidence that we know about the burden of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, it seems like every single paper is written by you. So <laughs> it's really wonderful to have you here and really share uh, where do we stand in terms of the burden right now. And really, I think looking forward, projecting forward um, where things are going to be in the next 10 to 20 years. So um, just some some numbers, perhaps, um, Zubair, um, uh, just looking at the global prevalence of uh, NAFWR and NASH, you've really led some of the landmark studies in this area. How many people uh, do we estimate are um, affected with these conditions overall and then in some of the high-risk groups? All right, well, thank you very much, Chef, here for um, your kind words and, and for uh, inviting me to participate in your podcast. Uh, the, the two th- aspects of the burden that, that I think is important, one is um, how common is this disease in the United States and, of course, globally. And the data is a little bit old. Uh, uh, it's, uh, it was from a meta-analysis. It was done about five years ago or so. The prevalence of NAFLD globally is about 25% in the general population. Uh, and if you look at different regions of the world, the highest prevalence is actually in the Middle East. And, uh, and there is uh, also much higher prevalence in certain populations that are at high risk, as you suggested, they are type 2 diabetics and also those who are considered to be obese, especially visceral obesity. And, and type 2 diabetics and other meta-analysis that we've done uh, suggest that their prevalence is about 55% or so. I think by now, because of the increase in the prevalence of obesity and type 2 diabetes, I suspect that the global prevalence is higher. It's probably somewhere between 25 to 30%. The uh, prevalence of NASH is actually very hard to determine in general population because, as you know, steatohepatitis is a histologic diagnosis, meaning that you need to do a liver biopsy to make the diagnosis, and you don't, you can't do that in the general population side of things. So you have to estimate, and we estimated in the uh, in the uh, uh, first meta-analysis that the prevalence of NASH in the general population was somewhere between one and a half to six and a half percent. Uh, again, in type 2 diabetics, about 37.5% of the diabetics will have histologic NASH. The second aspect of the burden, of course, has to do with with, um, with uh, outcomes. Uh, and, and really, I look at outcomes in two different ways. One, a mortality outcome, and then uh, that, and then the second part of that is to to then add, uh, you know sort of adjust the the mortality with disability and look at dollies. So when you look at the global burden of disease sort of uh, uh, studies that we have looked at recently. One was published uh, about a year ago in hepatology, and we have had a couple more published since then. The global burden of disease uh, for NAFLD uh, throughout the world is is, is high and, and increasing. Uh, for example, if you look at 
a mortality from uh, from cirrhosis related to f- five or four common liver diseases: hepatitis B, hepatitis C, alcoholic liver disease, and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Uh, you see that the burden of disease, uh, both for mortality as well as incidence, as well as dollies, are going up for NASH and AFLD. When you look at hepatitis B, at least in terms of incidence of cirrhosis and mortality from cirrhosis, because of the, the prevention that's been happening and the vaccination of hepatitis B, uh, uh, it's going down. Uh, and this is, this is actually consistent throughout different regions of the world. And the last point related to burden is that a paper that we currently have in publication that we looked at Asia and Middle East and North Africa, what's called the MENA region of the world, the, the highest uh, contribution to the burden of NAFLD comes from MENA in North Africa, uh, in, in, uh, in Asia. So half of all the liver complications from NAFLD uh, originates from Asia and the MENA regions of the world. So this sort of data that we saw a few years ago in terms of the prevalence rate being very high in this region, now it's actually translated, translating into higher mortality from cirrhosis and, and liver cancer and, and, and higher dollies from that same region of the world, which is which what tells us uh, that this is this is actually turning into a consequential disease that not only is a number in terms of you know number of, of patients that are affected by fatty liver, but this fatty liver that then turns into high rates of liver cancer, high rates of cirrhosis, and high mortality uh, from both of these two complications. Yeah, I know that I think you highlighted all these aspects really nicely. Um, and it looks like from these numbers where we were, uh, you know, a decade ago with the data and where the newer data are, that the trajectory is concerning. Uh, it certainly yeah, is. We expected it to be increasing, but it's, I think, increasing at a higher pace than anyone, really what we what we projected or what you projected. So that is con- concerning. Um, the other aspect, um, which I think is important to also uh, mention, is where there is not really a disease of, you know, adults or, or older individuals. There is quite a bit of footprint in kids as well. So and those are the individuals, people who will be living with this for a long period of time. Uh, I always thought that maybe with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, the patients are going to be older and will have other comorbidities and the competing risks will be higher. But um, that's not really the case. It affects everyone. And uh, I think we will be seeing the consequences, as you mentioned, uh, across the entire age range, across all genders, which is a little atypical for other chronic liver diseases. Absolutely, absolutely. I think that's probably the the uh, the most worrisome part of this disease that the tsunami is coming probably even more rapidly over the next you know multiple decades because the prevalence of NAFLD among children is estimated to be about seven and a half to eight percent. Probably is a little bit. This is an underestimate. Very high prevalence in South America. About twenty five percent of children have NAFLD. In the United States, when you look at kids, very similar to adults higher in, in boys and higher in Hispanic population uh, in, in, in the United States. Uh, and we actually just uh, have a, a paper in publication that looked at the prevalence over time in children and also in young adults. And you can see that the prevalence is going up substantially in, in, in children of all age groups. One evidence to just to, to, to confirm what you, what, you, uh, what you alluded to is that when you look at one uh, 
consequence of of uh, sort of liver outcome from uh, from this disease is liver transplantation or candidacy for liver transplant. Uh, as you know, over the past five six years, the the uh, you know hepatitis C is no longer the first the most common indication for liver transplantation. It is in the adults and in cirrhotics, it's actually uh, uh, alcoholic liver disease followed by non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. In the HCC group, um, this is data from the UNOS that, that we published, and I'm sure you published and others have published. In the, in the HCC group, it is hepatitis C is still the most common indication for HCC candidacy, but NAFLD is the second. So, and in, in more importantly is that when you look at rate of change uh, and increase over the past you know many years, the highest increase is happening in the NASH. So I expect that that um, that NASH is going to become the most common indication for liver transplantation, and probably the most com- one of the most common uh, etiologies of liver cancer uh, uh, in in this country and probably the world. Right, right, and actually, your data um, showed some of that. For if I rem- remember correctly, uh, NASH is already the number one indication for liver transplantation in women. Exactly, and also in the in those who are in forty five or or older. Right. Uh, we have another actually paper that 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 we are presenting um, at, the, at the hopefully at the liver meeting that shows that in the geriatric populations, you know, and I'm you know, I'm getting close to becoming geriatric, so 65 and older, it is the not most common cause of liver transplantation. Also, mm-hmm. so it's it's in and that's the you know it's an aging population, so we're transplanting patients in, in their 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's going to become a major burden, uh, uh, both you know clinical burden, but economic burden to, uh, to, to, to this country and to the rest of the world. Right, right. I think the footprint, I think, is already here. And it's just a matter of time that we will see it across all different groups and both, both age and um, gender. One thing uh, uh, that also is a little unusual, most chronic liver diseases that we come across, somehow there is this disparity um, by gender where male gender or, or men are more at a higher risk for uh, different consequences. That's not the case with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or NASH. Uh, it d- does not discriminate based upon gender um, in addition to uh, age. Um, so I think that's why we are seeing the shift uh, in etiology in women because they're less likely to have alcohol-related liver disease, less likely to even have advanced consequences from hepatitis C virus infection, but not really with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Um, so I think it's important for clinicians to recognize that this is now becoming number one risk factor for cirrhosis and advanced cirrhosis, as well as liver cancer in women. Yeah, I know, absolutely. I think the other, the, the health disparities related to NAFLD is, covers so many areas, as you know, because of the, you know, st- tight connectivity of this with obesity and with type 2 diabetes and, and all these uh, sort of nutrition islands that we have in different parts of, uh, of this country uh, and the fact that there is not a great deal of access to good activity and exercise, those are sort of the contributors of what we are dealing with here. So yes, there is, a, there is, there is, there is a, certainly a uh, uh, a higher sort of impact on, um, uh, in, in my view, in, uh, uh, in women because it's it's become the number one uh, indication for liver transplantation, but also in, in some of our minorities. It's it's very, very common in Hispanic population, as you know, and it's probably even more aggressive. Uh, this may be related to the diabetes prevalence, but it also may be something else. And and uh, and again, it, 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 it is hard to sort of, uh, figure out exactly what is the the, the contribution of uh, of environment versus 
genetic because even when you talk about Hispanic population, they're a heterogeneous group and they they come from different regions of the world to to this country. So when you look at this, it it is actually uh, there is no doubt that there is a that there is a that there is a higher sort of impact, uh, and it probably is also true in uh, when you when you make this global, the, the impact is probably higher uh, in Asia. Um, and 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 in Asia, it's not just your your sort of typical profile of, of an alpha-D, meaning um, obese, diabetic, but also lean alpha-D patients who don't actually make the criteria for uh, by BMI for being obese, but they still have um, um, nafl um, So th- th- there may be some other reason for them to have the disease there, but, but it, there is also probably a higher uh, impact and burden in, uh, in sort of the areas of the world that, that, that may not have a lot of access to high nutritious food and activity. I think this is what's not been looked at very carefully. We've, we always thought, well, this is probably a, a disease of, quote-unquote, uh, uh, the, the Western world, uh, and, and uh, um, we're learning that that, uh, that, is, that is changing because, unfortunately, uh, there have been uh, other things that have been imported to the rest of the world where, where uh, the access to high-fructose uh, diet and, and low activity because of other things uh, negatively impact this this aspect of of this important disease. Yes, no, this is I think important to recognize because the phenotype is not exactly the same. Uh, there, there's certainly this group uh, lean naffled, and it's not that uncommon, especially from certain regions of the world. So important to recognize that. And you're you're right, the risk factors. Um, and the mechanism might be slightly different in that patient population, and uh, lots more work needs to get done in that area. Uh, Zubair, you ref- we've talked a little bit about um, burden in terms of patient-reported outcomes. That also is an, another important aspect. Could you speak to that a bit um, in terms of quality of life and other outcomes that patients care about? I think one one of the misperceptions uh, that I had about NAFLD was that there's a "Quote unquote," uh, we all assume that nafli is an asymptomatic disease. In fact, uh, from a global registry that we that I manage with with a lot of colleagues across the world, about forty percent of nafli patients have significant fatigue. This is uh, not just a history of fatigue, which is you can take from from during the history taking, but actually, if you if you actually implement a PRO for fatigue, you you find that forty forty five percent of patients have. Uh, have uh, fatigue. And this is not benign fatigue. It has impact on patients' quality of life. When you look at uh, validated uh, quality of life questionnaires, that those who have fatigue have severe impairment of quality of life. And more importantly, it has an indirect economic impact. When, because if you look at their work productivity, again, through instruments like work productivity and activity instrument, or index, uh, their work productivity is lower. Their unemployment is higher. And uh, so, uh, so this this the 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 impact of NAFLD on um, uh, on the patient reported outcome will have consequences that will impact negatively patient experience, which is what really PROs are. It's their surrogate of patient experience, but also it, it exacerbate the economic burden of this disease. Absolutely. And as uh, from what your work, do you think that? Uh, the patient reported burden is similar across different regions and different subgroups, or do you think it's more common in certain areas or certain subgroups? 
I, I think like any other disease, um, the comorbidities uh, will actually certainly contribute to um, to higher uh, uh, burden of PROs or PRO burden. Um, and 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 but but that's true for congestive heart failure or for hepatitis C. But, if, but in addition to the comorbidities, there is actually a true impact of of fatty liver disease that gets exacerbated with more activity, uh, histologic activity, and more advanced stage of fibrosis. For example, patients who have high histologic activity as a NAS score will have more impairment, and that may be related to the uh, inflammatory milieu that they have uh, uh, because of their obesity and type 2 diabetes that leads to NASH, but also leads to uh, fatigue and, and, and other sort of biomarkers of PRO impairment. Um, uh, so th- that would be an, an important um, uh, aspect, aspect of this. So I, I think I, I think the the other groups that probably will have uh, um, there is actually a, a, a difference between PRO impairment uh, that's based on gender and it's not related to just liver disease. Uh, and from no matter what region of the world you look at, uh, PROs and women are actually seem to be a little bit lower uh, or the scores are lower. I mean, there's more impairment, so there, there's probably that. Uh, I, I think in terms of other geographic sort of issues, it, there are cultural issues that needs to be considered. For example, uh, if you actually take a history from someone, say, from Japan, in fact, we looked at this for hepatitis C, you don't get actually a lot of sort of historical data related to quality of life or fatigue, for example. But if you implement an instrument, a validated fatigue instrument, you find that the prevalence is very much the same. So if you do, uh, if you assess this accurately, then then I think the PROs geographically probably are not impacted uh, by by where the patients are coming from. It really would be dependent on presence of comorbidities and also stage of liver disease. Those are the things that, that would, and, and also activity of liver disease in NASH that, that will impact uh, things a lot more. Thank you. This was very insightful, actually. Um, that is how you measure it. But the burden seems pretty equivalently spread out across different groups in different regions. But I think towards the end of this um, uh, this podcast, uh, I also wanted to come back to liver cancer, um, which is already um, an important cancer. Um, but there was a hope that with hepatitis C, uh, hopefully under control with the new medications that we will start seeing a fall uh, in liver cancer. And we are seeing some of that, but um, the issue with NAFL and NAFL HCC is rising at the same time. And uh, we're seeing more and more of it. You've also, in some of your studies, projected the future burden of HCC and how much NASH and NAFL will contribute to it. And the numbers look enormous. Yes which is concerning with the cancer that still doesn't have uh, good curative treatment options. That, I think, is another alarm feature that we'll have to somehow struggle with. And the fact that finding patients who are at risk for liver cancer within patients with NAFL and NASH is also more problematic than in other chronic liver diseases does not help. No, absolutely. I think I mean, you and your group uh, have done some of the incredibly important pioneering work in this in this area, and and uh, you know I think it's just because the number of patients. I mean here you know as you've got you've, your group has shown 
that patients who are non-cirrhotic NAFLD-NASH, they're also at risk for, for HCC, although the rates are uh, uh, are lower in terms of whether you should, you know, will not probably qualify for screening. Of course, then the, the, the reality is that, you know, the vast majority of patients with NAFLD will not have NASH, but they are still at some risk for, for HCC. And if you look at those numbers, I actually think that over the next few years, that, that HCC is going to become probably mostly related to, to NASH as we cure hepatitis uh, C and really suppress hepatitis B effectively. Uh, it becomes this disease that doesn't have any treatment. And, you know, as we as we as you alluded to, there is no good treatment for this. And the, the diagnosis for NASH is still uh, a biopsy, and and there is a lot of NITs that are being developed for fibrosis. Uh, some of them are good. I think a combination of these NITs will be used to just stage patients. But then we have to show that these non-invasive staging uh, modalities or algorithms really predicts outcome, uh, because that's really what what ultimately is important. That that what they. The one last point I'd like to make is that. Despite this growing burden, the fact that this is becoming one of the most common liver diseases, and and you know we have these challenges with 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 treatment, uh, and and with with the diagnostic modalities. But probably the biggest challenge, in my view, is the lack of awareness about uh, this disease. Uh, um, we just looked at the uh, enhanced data set and looked at patients with fatty liver versus hepatitis C. To, to see, there's a survey to look to, to see if these patients even know if they have liver disease of any kind. So about almost 40% of patients with hepatitis C were aware that they had that they had liver disease, but only about four four and a half percent of patients with NAFLD. So there is a lack of awareness at the patient level. There is lack of awareness at the providers level. You've done. Mm-hmm. A, a, a big survey yourself. Yeah. We've done a global survey of uh, of providers. There's lack of awareness at the primary care level, at the uh, endocrinologist level, or di- diabetologist level. Even in, among gastroenterologists, there is there is an increased awareness, but not not where we want it to be. To, to be. So that's another, of course, important. And finally, there is a lack of awareness in the in the and amongst policymakers. And at the end of the day, we need a a, this is a non-communicable disease, and to change the trajectory of this is not going to be with one treatment or a couple of diagnostics. There has to be a national policy to, to deal with this with this complication of obesity and type 2 diabetes uh, through national policies, regional policies, and global policies. That's the only way we can actually get the burden under control. Absolutely right. I think this is such an important point that we should leave it at this important point to make sure the emphasis remains. You're absolutely right. Um, that's, I think, the biggest and the largest uh, challenge for almost everyone, um, recognition of this problem and call for a national, international, uh, global policy on it. Um, thank you so much, Zubair. It's wonderful chatting with you. Same here. Thanks, Lucia, and it's been a pleasure. And uh, good luck with, uh, with the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for joining us for this episode on the burden of NAFLD and NASH. You can find the other five episodes in this series, the NASH Clinical Care Pathway, and more resources at the program's website, nash.gastro.org. Thank you for listening today. Visit nash.gastro.org to get your CME credits and find clinical pearls and a full transcript of this episode. Be sure to listen to the other five podcasts in this series on NAFLD and NASH covering important topics 
like diagnosis, management, and team-based care. Also, at nash.gastro.org, you can download our NASH app to help you apply what you've learned in clinical practice. Thanks also to our sponsor, the American Gastroenterological Association, and for the medical education grant from Novo Nordisk.